turn with me to uh, Isaiah's prophecy. We've been studying uh, for the last number of weeks uh, Isaiah all the way from chapter 40, and we will end up at chapter 55. We've got to chapter 52 at the moment, one of the better known passages in uh, Isaiah and in the whole Bible, I think, from chapter 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, let's pray, shall we? Ask the Lord to help us understand that. Lord, for some of us here, 
There are words in this passage that are perhaps the most familiar words in the Bible to us. We've read them and known them for many, many years. Lord, give us fresh eyes, we pray this morning. Give us open hearts. Help us to understand more deeply and be be, uh, brought closer to you than perhaps we've ever been before, Lord. And Lord, there are some of us here who... uh, for whom none of these words are familiar. For whom everything is fresh, everything is unknown. For whom all these things feel foreign. Lord, we pray, help us to understand perhaps for the first time. Help us to uh, see your great purpose for this world, but more especially for us as individuals. And give us the hearts and minds and will to respond, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. I love Agatha Christie stories. I uh, have done so, I've loved them from a very young age. I remember the first one I read. It was The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, published in one of those very old olive green penguin paperbacks. I found it at the back of a bookshelf in my parents' uh, bedroom. I remember reading it and so enjoying it. Because Agatha Christie's got an extraordinary knack of dropping into a story just enough clues to make you say at the end, of course, why didn't I think of that? And yet just few enough clues so that you are never quite sure who the murderer is until the very last page. I always loved the, uh, the denouement in the drawing room, just as much as Hercule Poirot seemed to. Suddenly it all fitted together, the murderer was exposed. See, Isaiah, actually, in his writing style, is a bit of an Agatha Christie. He's dropped tantalizing clues into his prophecy, clues about how God is going to save his people. His story is probably not so much a who done it as a how will he do it. And he said very, very clearly that he is going to rescue his people from captivity, from, that, uh, from their captivity in that hostile nation of Babylon. Very large part of the chapters that we've read uh, so far has been devoted to reassuring people that God is in control of nations, even. He's in control of history. He will rescue his people, Israel. And uh, we've uh, uh, learned that that's still true today. God is still in control. He now rules the whole world, the whole universe, for the church, for his people now scattered throughout the world who make up uh, the church. That's what the Bible tells us. But throughout these chapters in Isaiah, there has been, every now and again, popping up to the surface, a far deeper problem that actually hasn't been adequately addressed yet. See, Israel was actually in exile for a very good reason. She had rebelled against God. 
And if you've been following through the, uh, the chapters we've been reading, it's, becoming, it's been becoming increasingly clear that actually God's people are never going to perfectly repent of that rebellion. They are blind, we learned. They will not listen. They do not deserve to be called Israel. Now, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a futile hope if we think that somehow another generation of people is going to grow up who are somehow sinless, who don't deserve at all to be punished in any way. Now, that, uh, that hope has really evaporated. But God is going to save them. God, in fact, is going to have to forgive them despite their failure. Remember that in chapters 43 and 44? It was very clear. And that presents a very big problem for God, which we really haven't started to address yet. You see, we can forgive people relatively easily. You know, we have to accept as human beings that we live in a messy world where we all hurt one another, where the ruthless pursuit of justice would actually simply destroy everyone. We forgive injustice in a day, on a day-to-day -day basis because that's the only way that we can survive in a world like ours. Uh, releasing the terrorists in Northern Ireland, for instance, is a, is a classic example of that. We trade off the demands of justice against the demands of forgiveness to try to find a way in the real world where we can just live at peace together. It's not very satisfying. Full justice is not achieved. Forgiveness, full forgiveness, is, uh, is not really achieved either. But that's the world we have to live in. But God is perfect. And God is determined to build a perfect world. The Bible calls it heaven. A world, in fact, where absolute justice has been done. Otherwise, it wouldn't be heaven. If there was just uh, cheap forgiveness, which uh, ignored all the injustices in history, in fact, it would just be a, a place of eternal, ongoing injustice. But God must forgive as well. He must not only see... Uh, perfect justice. There must be perfect forgiveness, otherwise heaven may be a perfect place, but it would be unpopulated. There would be no one there. How can perfect justice and perfect forgiveness coexist in heaven? Actually, we got a clue to the answer to that right back in Isaiah chapter 40, the very first passage we looked at. It's worth you just turning it up. It's on 7.2.3 in uh, the church Bibles. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, we didn't actually look at in detail at the time. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Her sin, says Isaiah, has been paid for. Not forgiven, you see, in the sense of it just being swept under the carpet. 
paid for perfectly. Actually, when it says that Israel's received double for all her sins, it doesn't mean she's received twice as much punishment as she deserves. It means something like the mirror image or the double, the perfect opposite for her sins. The obvious conclusion that we might draw from, from that is that the period in exile has punished her enough. Isn't that what that, those, those verses draw us to? Perhaps she has paid for her own sins enough and now she can be set free. But actually, as we've read through the prophecy of Isaiah, it's become clear <coughs> that actually Israel's sins are still mounting up. If she, or actually for that matter any of us, tries to pay for our debts, then we will discover we are undischarged bankrupts forever. Because every day that goes by, the overdraft gets bigger. But God, we've said, is determined to be both just and forgiving. Chapter 43, verse 25, for instance. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Or chapter 44, verse 22. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. But how is he going to do that? That's the question. How is he going to do that? Well, the answer lies in this mysterious figure who has popped up again and again and come more and more clearly into focus as these chapters have gone on, the servant. And at the beginning, Israel was the servant in chapters 41 and, uh, 40 and 41. But then there was uh, this servant in chapter 42 who is going to bring justice to the nations, one of God's great requirements. Then he pops up again in chapter 49. This time he is clearly a, an individual. This time he is going to bring salvation to Israel, but funnily enough, he himself is called Israel too. And now, in the passage before us, the servant pops up again. This time, he is getting to the root of the problem. This time, he is winning forgiveness. Isaiah is going to unfold the plan for the forgiveness of his people. And as such, this passage for each one of us is absolutely vital for us to understand because this is no casual piece of literature. This is not just a clever little Agatha Christie story. No, this is information about life and death. This is the denouement where we learn how God can be perfectly just on the one hand and yet perfectly forgive us on the uh, on the other hand, and the absolutely central need for every single human being is forgiveness. Everybody, whether they believe in God or not, actually, instinctively knows that they don't live up to the standards that somehow are, are woven into the fabric of the universe. 
Now, some people deny it, but they live with a, with a, an, a superficial, un, uh, unsatisfying attitude to the world because they never actually dare to examine their hearts and own up to what they see there. Because they know that if they do, they will actually be uh, uh, horrified by what they see. And sense this great need for someone to forgive them. Now, Marguerite Alasky, who was a British novelist and critic of an earlier era, for some of you anyway, um, she was interviewed shortly before her death. She was an atheist. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Now, Christians have someone to forgive them. And Isaiah 53 is going to tell us how he does it. Actually divides into five uh, sections, this, this passage. I've got it on overhead and you've got it on an insert as well. Let me put it on the overhead so you can uh, glance at it as we go by. Five sections. First of all, we're going to see at the end of chapter 52 the, the, the superficial, so to speak, what we will see of God's plan. Then the main central sections where Isaiah starts to unpack that, what, uh, what's going on with this servant, shows first of all in the 1 to 3, the servant's insignificance. Then uh, in verses 4 to 6, the servant's suffering. Then in verses 7 to 9, the servant's death. Before Isaiah comes back and wraps it all up and says, now that you've uh, seen all that, this is, this is what was really going on in the plan. This is the ultimate denouement of the plan. In verses 10 to 12. Firstly then, let's look at what Isaiah tells us about what we will see of God's plan, what he expects the world to see. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. That's what's going to happen, says Isaiah. God's servant will act wisely. That actually doesn't mean what, quite what we might think it means. It means more that he will have the competence to ensure that what he wants to achieve, he will achieve. That is wisdom in that sense. And he will be lifted up and exalted. But this servant, says Isaiah, is going to give us some surprises. Successful and exalted he may be, but actually people will see him disfigured and marred and will be appalled. All the powerful voices in the world, he says, will speculate confidently about his failure until suddenly one day they turn round and, he's, and find that he has achieved the global purpose that he set out to achieve all along. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him, he says. There are two great reversals of expectation, he says, to watch for. 
First of all, the exalted servant will be damaged and disfigured. And then he says, surprise, surprise, the disfigured servant will actually achieve the great purpose for mankind that he always intended to achieve so that even the mouths of kings are stopped. That's what you'll see, says Isaiah. But then he unpacks that a little bit more. He says, let me tell you a little bit more about this servant. Let me tell you, first of all, how apparently insignificant he will look. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, Isaiah has been talking for chapter after chapter, hasn't he, about God's incredible power. God's power over Cyrus. God's power over any force. God's power over the whole universe. Then he says, do you know, I wonder whether anyone can really spot God's power in this world when it comes. I wonder whether they really will. Because he says, when God's ultimate power comes in this world, it will seem so insignificant. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now we can't hold out this suspense any longer, can we? It's Jesus he's talking about. We've seen that earlier in the previous studies and uh, uh, it starts to come into absolute clear focus here. Jesus was born as an insignificant outcast. He didn't have people, you know, flocking to the manger because uh, uh, a child of the most extraordinary radiant beauty had been born. You know, all those Christmas cards that show a halo around Jesus' face and light coming out of, out of, the, of the, the manger, they're all rubbish. Now, in order for the shepherds to be persuaded that something special was going on, they had to see thousands of angels. In order for the kings to be persuaded that something special was going on, they needed to see a sign written in the sky. And when they got to Bethlehem, what did they see? They saw an ordinary little baby, an ordinary little child. And when he'd grown up, if if, uh, you saw Jesus in a crowd, your eye would just skip past him. We wouldn't have considered him much use for anything, says Isaiah. When Isaiah says he was despised, he doesn't mean so much people would have spat at him as soon as look at him. That happened later in his life, but that's not what he's talking about. No, he just means he would be considered worthless. He would have been considered as just an ordinary carpenter, son of a carpenter, born in distinctly dubious circumstances. And therefore, he would have been dismissed, rejected, ignored. What's he got to tell us? And if you watched Jesus for a while, says Isaiah, you would see him cry. You would have seen him groan in pain. 
You would have seen him get tired. You'd see him get hungry. You'd see him perhaps mourn the death of his father. All the normal things that human beings suffer. Like everyone else, he says. You and I would have said, Saviour of the world? Nah. He couldn't be that. And yet he is, as I say. Yet this insignificant child will show God's ultimate strength in this world. If only we can see it. Then Isaiah goes further. He says, no, he's not. he wasn't just insignificant. No, he suffered. And he suffered more than the rest of the mankind. But at the same time, as Isaiah starts uh, portraying that to us, he starts to show with clarity what is really going on. He suffered for a quite specific reason says Isaiah. He suffered because in some way, he says he was like a great sponge absorbing the pain of the world into himself so that it didn't affect others. Verse uh, 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Matthew in chapter 8 records Jesus healing people and then quotes exactly that verse to explain it as though Jesus had almost sucked all of that damage, all of that pain, all of that brokenness that there was in those people out of themselves and somehow absorbed it into his person. He took up our infirmities, says Isaiah. But we never understood that. We thought his suffering must mean that he'd done something wrong. Yet we considered, verse 4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Indeed, Isaiah then goes to probe a little deeper into this suffering that this servant is going to have to endure. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was punished. He was wounded for our failures, our iniquity, our transgression, our failures, our straying, our rebellion against God. Do you see that? He was punished so that we might have peace. He was wounded so that we might be healed. Like sheep, we wandered off, but he paid the price. Isaiah is describing a great exchange here. Jesus is treated as if he was a rebel. He receives punishment for that in order that we can be treated as if we were not. And that price, says Isaiah, is not just suffering. Oh no, it goes further than that, he says. He paid with his life. In fact, uh, 
Isaiah only lets it slowly dawn on us over the next few verses that he's talking about the death of the servant. First of all, he says he's like a a meek lamb or a ewe. Verse uh, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers in silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, we've been reading about this servant. We know he's going to bring justice to the nation. We know he's going to save people. Now, surely it cannot mean that he's going to die. Maybe he'll just get shorn a bit and then let go like a sheep. Well, verse uh, 8 starts to uh, disabuse us of that. No, says Isaiah, he is going to be taken away. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You know, people who live in situations of oppression know what it means to be taken away. You don't come back. He is not going to have a happy family life. Verse 8 again, who can speak of his descendants? In fact, he's not going to live at all. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And says Isaiah, as if that wasn't enough, he is not going to die the death of a magnificent martyr. This is going to be the death of someone who dies as if he was judged personally by God. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You know, when it says he was assigned a grave with the rich there, I don't think Isaiah is wanting to indicate that he had any particular honour. Isaiah has been quite clear earlier on in his prophecy that that, uh, the rich are as much under judgment of uh, God for their oppression of others as those who are overtly wicked. Isaiah is saying Jesus was categorized before God as a rebel. He died, remember, with thieves nailed to the cross either side of him. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. So says Isaiah. That's what's going to happen to this servant. What's really going on, though? Why is God letting all this happen, he says? That's what he starts to unpack in verses 10 to 12. We get back to God's plan, God's perspective again. And uh, uh, now we get below the surface of what we will see, what's really going on. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, he says. God was in control. God had planned all this. God had put it all into practice. The servant, says Isaiah, was dying as a guilt offering. Do you see that in verse 10? 
the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. A guilt offering was an animal sacrifice designed to pay for some particular sin. The animal died as a substitute instead of the person. And in the same way, says Isaiah, the servant will die as a substitute instead of his people. But somehow, says Isaiah, this is not going to be the end of the story. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We saw that kings were going to be surprised at this failed servant, how successful he is. And Isaiah says, I'm reiterating that to you. And now I'm going to tell you why he's going to be so successful, even after his death. Verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He's going to rise from the dead. That death will not be the end. That death, in fact, will be the glorious prelude to an eternal life, an exalted life, a life seated at God's right hand, and many will be forgiven as a result of that. Or as Isaiah puts it, justified. That means counted as if they were just. Many will be forgiven. Verse 11 again. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, he will bear their iniquities. Not only the servant, will the servant live. He will be exalted to the highest place imaginable. Verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. That's the story I'm unfolding for you, says Isaiah. That's what's really going on. That is the great plan for forgiveness for you and me. God will take an ordinary man, the servant Jesus. God will allow him to suffer instead of us. God will allow him to die the death of someone separated from himself instead of us. God will raise him up to eternal life. There is a big problem, though. One enormous problem in this plan. How could the death of a third party be just? How could it be just for God, in fact, to take their sins off people who deserve it and put all the consequences of that rebellion onto the shoulder of someone who did not deserve it, who stood innocently alongside us? How could that ever be just? We can see how it might forgive us. Because God can only punish a particular rebellion once, can't he? Otherwise he would be not being fair. But how could it be just? Actually, Isaiah's already given us a clue as to how that could be. It's back in 
13. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, says Isaiah of this servant. Elsewhere, Isaiah only ever uses that language of God himself. When uh, Isaiah saw God in the temple, for instance, in chapter 6, he describes him as high and exalted, the same couple of words. And this servant is godlike. In fact, the New Testament says he is God-made man. God is not punishing an innocent third party. He is actually saying, you have rebelled against me, but I will pay for it. And I cannot pay as God. Human sins must be paid for in human punishment. It would be just a fiction for me just to uh, absorb that into my infinite body and say that that was justice. Now I have to make myself finite. I have to make myself human. I have to make myself weak alongside mankind. To really take that just punishment on myself and forgive you. That's what he did. That's what uh, we will be celebrating in just 10 days' time. Christmas Day. The infinite becomes finite. The strong becomes weak. The perfect accepts limitation. That he could pay for our sins and set us free. In the light of all that, then, what do you think our greatest need is this morning? What do you think we most need? Now, your response may be, well, what we need to do is, is go and sin no more and uh, therefore add no extra burden to the suffering of Jesus. Well, that's a good sentiment, but I don't think it's our most profound need. Perhaps you might think uh, we should go and live incredibly active lives, glorifying God, doing all sorts of Christian things in response to that. Well, that's good too but I don't think it's our absolutely central need. You know, I think what our greatest need is, if this is God's plan, is to enjoy it. It's to simply say, thank you, God. All of those failures, all of those rebellions, all of those weaknesses that I sense in myself, that I have known in myself, and that deep down I have longed to be forgiven, are forgiven in this servant, are forgiven in Jesus Christ, are forgiven because God became man. Thank you, God. 
Do you know what the greatest danger is for us? I think the greatest danger is that still, after we have seen Isaiah portray our failures so weak, so, so clearly over these uh, uh, last few weeks, and now proclaim the solutions so clearly that we could say thanks, but no thanks. That we could say, I'll get myself right with God. You know, there are people who do that overtly and consciously. They say, I don't want charity, thank you very much. But tragically, there are sometimes people who profess to be Christians who in the end reject God's gift of forgiveness. Just imagine with me, just imagine you're on your deathbed. You know, they, say, they say that uh, no matter how short a time you've got before you die, your life flashes before you, don't they? What will flash before you as you prepare to meet God face to face? What answers will you prepare to give him to his question, why should I let you into heaven? I went to church, God, all my life. Away from me, I never knew you, says the son. I knew the Bible backwards, God. Away from me, I never knew you, says the son. I was incredibly self-sacrificial all of my life, God. Away from me, I never knew you, says the son. I was a leader in a church, God, a vibrant church that saw lots of conversions. Away from me, I never knew you, says the son. I was a fully paid up evangelical, God. I knew every doctrine backwards and could refute every error. Away from me, I never knew you, says the son. I was always nice to people, God. I never hurt anyone. Away from me, I never knew you, says the son. One way or another, I failed in every way, God. But all my Christian life, I knew I could turn to you and say from the bottom of my heart, Father, forgive me. Well done, good and faithful servant, says the Son. Christ died for you. And do you know perhaps even more extraordinary than any of those things. One further thing about this plan. Our forgiveness is so precious to God that Isaiah tells us God was actually pleased to crush his son 
Quite extraordinary, but it's in verse uh, 10. And the NIV um, avoids it. But I assure you it is there in the, in the original. It was not the Lord's will to crush his son. It was the Lord's pleasure to crush him, says Isaiah. It's not because God's a sadist. There was an eternal, infinite, loving bond between God the Father and God the Son. But he was so extraordinarily, passionately determined to save ordinary people like us here. That somehow, through all the pain that he could foresee, all the trouble, all the agony of death, and and a separation within the Godhead himself, there was joy, there was pleasure. A couple of months ago, in an evening service, I read uh, a little parable, which I'll read to you here. Some of you will have heard it. Because I think it helps us to see how God could possibly be pleased to achieve this great forgiveness. Once there was a land ruled by a wicked prince, He had come from a foreign country and enslaved all the people of the land and made them miserable with hard labor in his coal mines across a a deep canyon. He had built a massive trestle for the trains that carried his slaves across the canyons of the mines each morning, and it was heavily guarded. Two men were still free in this kingdom. One old and the other young. And they lived in an inaccessible cliff overlooking the trestle. They hated the trestle. At last they resolved together to blow it up and thereby destroy the slave labor of the enemy prince. They planned, they prayed, and they reminded themselves of the reality of heaven. The night came when the deed would be done and their hearts were pounding with joy. It was a hard plan. It would be possible to to time the trek of the trestle guard so that the explosive could be carried quickly to the vulnerable spot on the trestle. But there would be no time for the carrier of the explosives to return It was certain that he would be seen and the plan foiled if he tried to return. To make sure the trestle blew up, the two men agreed that the young man would detonate it by hand on the trestle and he would blow up with it. But they believed in heaven. They loved the people of this land. So the honour of this sacrifice made their hearts leap with joy. The hour came. They folded up the map of their strategy, stood up from the table and embraced each other. 
When the young man got to the door, he turned with the explosive strapped to his back, looked at the old man and said, I love you, Father. The old man took a deep breath with joy and said, I love you too, son. Let's pray. How could we ever come near imagining the depth of love, the depth of commitment that you, God the Father, and God the Son could have to our salvation, that you were prepared to be ripped apart for our forgiveness. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, if it's the first time that we've ever seen that this morning, please let us respond with our whole hearts. We know there is nothing we need to do but say, Father, forgive me. And Lord, if that is the hundredth time or the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time we've thought of it this morning, please, Lord, nevertheless, deepen and strengthen and confirm our relationship with you. Please, Lord, give us peace deep in our hearts. that because of the death of the Son, because of the death of the servant, we are forgiven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.